This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Worth a try. And he's always prepared to give it a go. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. Hello, we are Off the Ball with myself, Cam Ruslan, and today we have two up front, the Andrew Cole and Dwight York of Punditry. Uh, he is Arvind Sidhu. Hello, everyone. It's always good to be here on a Monday to kickstart the week. And Kishnan Sundaresan. Hello, everyone. Um, what a weekend, huh? What a weekend. What a wonderful weekend for a Manchester United fan. They always are. Uh, very, very, very quickly, nominate your, your, your favourite front two players of all time. I just watched a documentary about the Ferguson I... glory days, and I thought... Colin, quite yeah. you up pretty good. I, I come from an era where I grew up watching Pera, and my favorite front two of all time is Khalid Jamlos and V. Saravanan. Cool. Those were from my childhood days. Arvin? Mark Viduka and Alan Smith. Aha. I think they, they, and they didn't talk to each other for like ever, wasn't it? No, they were okay. I think Mark Viduka generally as an individual isn't the most sociable. Also. <laughs> But, but they were okay. They were right. Okay. This show is going to be Premier League mostly, but also we're going to be looking forward to Champions League semi-final. You know, this Premier League season is really fascinating because we've got a battle for first. We've got a battle for that all-important Champions League fourth spot. And we also have a battle against uh, at least one relegation spot. So uh, we're going to start with that battle for fourth. And Kishnan is where we bring you in for a remarkable match. Arsenal 3, Manchester United 1. The things I learned were it confirmed that Saka can take penalties. That's nice to know. And uh, that Saka shot for the uh, the final goal from Arsenal was fantastic. It was genuine. Uh, for example, Granit Xhaka um, is one of those guys who has had a 360 degrees experience at Arsenal. He has come full circle now. Um, I, I clearly remember the day when he got booed off the pitch. He was being um, told to leave the club by Arsenal fans. Um, but, he, but, but you know, Mikel Atetas uh, kept his faith in him. They, they, they had internal conversations. Granit Xhaka continued to, to, to play for Arsenal without the captain's armband. And it's come to a point where in the aftermath of that win against Man United, um, he, as he was leaving the stadium, um, people were, you know, trying to stop his car to get his autograph and he, and, and he stopped him. He wound on his windows, took some selfies, signed some autographs. And as he drove off, an entire group of fans were chanting his name. To me, that's, that's you, you've come full circle from, the, from, from getting abused to now being a cult hero within Arsenal. And it's genuinely nice to see the, the arc, his story at Arsenal, so to speak, because uh, he's always been one of those misunderstood football players. Sometimes we, we get footballers and we sometimes place way too much burden on them. Uh, it's not to say that Granit Xhaka has been perfect, but it's also not been as disastrous as sometimes the narrative on social media would make you believe. And, and when you remove the burden from him in the form of the captaincy, and when you add a bit more quality into the team to give him a support system as well, and you, you finally see the Granit Xhaka that, that people used to rave about in the Bundesliga, you see the Granit Xhaka that turns up for the Swiss national team um, at, at major tournaments. Yes, every now and then you will get the erratic red card. You will get the, the unnecessary tackles. Uh, but that's that's part of the package when you sign Granit Xhaka, right? Ultimately, he will also give you moments like he did against Man United. He's, he's, a, he's a wonderful football player. And, and, I, and I honestly, Cam, I couldn't be happier to see him uh, make that full circle at Arsenal. 
Yeah, I you know you reminded me of that time when he was being booed. It was it was really kind of shameful. He and he looked really so hurt by yeah. by that. How many years ago was that now? It was probably two three years ago. Not 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 very long ago. Hey, uh, Arvin, we spent a lot of time, and and this is I want to do this also to um, you know for, for Kishnan's emotional state. We spent a lot of time talking about how terrible Manchester United is. So, but it's, it's a given, okay? Arsenal, though, what what is making Arsenal tick in your mind? I mean, the thing. I was comparing to the Wenger. There was a lot of that kind of um, pretty play inside the box. But the difference was they seemed to be taking shots from distance. They were just like, let's score a goal. Yeah. 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 Um, during the Wenger era, there was a lot of talk about, there were a lot of fans disgruntled that Arsenal at times wanted to pass the ball into the net. They they literally focused more on the, the, the pre-goal rather than the goal in itself. But you're right. Now you're seeing them from a variety of play where goals, like you see the ones over the weekend, I mean, the first one was, was from the far left. And then the third one was obviously Grant Shaka's belter from outside the box. So I think you're seeing a bit more variety in the play for Arsenal compared to when, when I mean, the Wenger years were great. I, I actually think the start of the Wenger years were really good. But I think after a while, teams started to figure out how to play against them. And there was a sense that there was a lacking of a physicality in that team. This Arsenal squad, uh, if you look at the Arteta squad and you look at the Wengers and the year tenure, this Arsenal squad has actually got a back four and a goalkeeper that's solid. Like when Ramsdale came, there was a lot of furor that he's been relegated twice with two different teams. The thing was Bournemouth and Sheffield United. And now you've got a back four, which is pretty much all stabilised, um, except for obviously injuries for Kieran Tierney. But then Nuno Tavares comes in and scores a goal. Uh, it was nice to see Tomiyasu get a run out at the end because he's coming back from that. So I think that stability is key, but it's a huge week for them. I mean, when you look at the context of what other things happened with Spurs drawing, United losing, um, and to win back-to-back games against teams like this, like Chelsea and Man United, when Arsenal for so many years, there was talk that they, they couldn't measure up to the top six. This is a huge mental win for them as well. So I think it's good for them. And even their, their women's team you know, won over the weekend. So it's a good time over in North London right now. So Arsenal fans will be will be happy, but that consistency is important because before these two tough games, they lost some points that they shouldn't have lost. But they put themselves in the driving seat back once again. Because the situation in that top four position is that, uh, well, Chelsea in third, they must be safe on 65 points and that they can't possibly lose every match going on. Arsenal now are on 60 points and Spurs on 58 and Manchester United, who have played one extra game on 54, they must be they must be out of it now. Yeah, I, I, the Champions League is honestly done and dusted for United, um, and and deserving it so as well. Given the season we've had, given the implosion, um, it's it's insane really. Because in the last two years, we finished third, and then last season second, and 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 in the similar squad just completely um, has has imploded this season. And I wonder why. There's a lot of factors. I've made my position clear on 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 those factors over the last uh, few months whenever we've spoken about Man United. But I, I I don't want to dive deep into a lot of those issues that we've touched on. All I'll say is I think this this performance against Arsenal was a juxtaposition between two uh, football clubs that have had really rough periods in the last few years, but one of them has picked up their mess earlier than the other, and 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 that's Arsenal because. There is now a structure at the club. Uh, there is a, a, a clear delegation of responsibilities between what the manager does, between who the director of football is, Edu Gaspar, former Arsenal player, 
when he was initially appointed as the director of football, he came under a lot of pressure. But the reality is that. The reality is when you're a football director, you will make mistakes too. Uh, but that does not mean that you do not have the capacity to get a lot of other things right. Right? For example, um, you, you, you look at Michael Edwards at Liverpool. I think he, he's been tremendously successful in terms of um, recruitment, some of the squad building that they've had. But they've also had hits and misses here with signings, right? A lot more incredible ones, but there have been some hits and misses. Takumi uh, Minamino is an example who until now hasn't been able to fully embed himself within that, that Liverpool style of play. You, you go over to Leeds as well, Victor Orta, who's an incredible uh, director of football who has accomplished some tremendous signings over the years. But there's, there's also been hits and misses and Arvin himself will be able to talk to you about that. And, and Edu is the same. Most importantly, this year, I remember at the start of the season, me looking at that Arsenal team and, and, and on a bunch of shows on Astro saying that, wow, like you look at the signings from Tomiyasu to Nuno Tavares, who's still a, 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 an unpolished gem. Um, you, you look at Aaron Ramsdale, you look at Ben White, every single one of the signings has been so calculated in terms of why they've been brought into the club. And, and, and they've all looked great, especially Aaron Ramsdale, right? Mm-hmm. The amount of criticism that he got when, he, when they first signed him from Bournemouth, like, why are you signing Aaron Ramsdale? He struggled. But immediately look at the kind of pass, passes he's pulling at Arsenal. Even against Man United over the, over the weekend, there's that one pass where I think four Man United players were pressing the Arsenal defence and somehow Aaron Ramsdale just manages to find a tiny pocket to break that press and find Martin Odegaard without losing possession. I mean, those are values... Um, in Aaron Ramsdale that you couldn't see at Bournemouth before, but Edu and obviously Mikel Arteta were able to spot that that talent. So the difference is that you've got an Arsenal set that is not perfect, but there is a structure at the club in terms of how things are being done. Uh, there is a, a, a system in place in terms of how they want to go about things. It's taken them time. It's taken Arteta a bit of time to build that system and get that system running at Arsenal. And it's still not perfect yet, but you're starting to reap the rewards from having that system, whereas you, you, you've got a complete mess in the form of Man United who don't have an overarching strategy that is um, generally a, a strong one, and hence you, you, you got the results. It, it wasn't surprising at all, Cam, to see that. Yeah. At the beginning of the season, I was I was all Arteta out. I stand by that. Anyway, moving on. Uh, <laughs> okay, I've changed my mind. Um, Hey, we've run out of time. And for On Friday, we talked an entire part about Manchester United match. We've done it again. We must stop doing this, but we'll finish off this top four thing in the next part, in part two, here on Off the Ball, BFM 89.9. Captain, leader, legend. Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back on Off the Ball. And Arvind, I want to ask you about, we were supposed to do it in part one, but we talked about Manchester United instead. Um, the match that I thought was a very strange match, Brentford nil, Spurs nil. Now, Spurs really need to be picking up points if they want that fourth spot. And here was an opportunity, I felt. And Brentford, I, I don't know, was it was it that, that, that Spurs were just flat? Or was it that Brentford had worked out a way to completely snuff them out? Because Kane's main contribution was a goal line clearance on his own goal. I think it's a combination of both. It's never easy this season to go to the Brentford Community Stadium. I think it's a, it's an incredibly, incredible, volatile ground when it needs to be. Uh, the fans are really close. The fans are very connected to their team. So it, it's a tough place to go. And unfortunately, my Leeds goes there on the final day of the season. But um, I think it was a combination of both over the weekend. Um, Spurs, the challenge that they have right now is the goals have dried up. 
they've got zero shots on goal for the last two matches and that mm. is lacking any sense of fluidity. So that is an area that they need to address very, very quickly. They're losing a bit of ground. They've got Antonio Conte there who knows how to get things done, but he has in his past seasons kind of tailed off towards the end of seasons in his previous clubs. So this is something that they need to sort out. But don't take anything away from Brentford. I mean, what a great April that they've had. I think Thomas Frank is up there for potential uh, manager of the month for April. And we always know that's a potential curse and then he'll probably lose everything in May. But they've done what they needed to do. Uh, the magical 40-point marker. Um, and they had chances. Ivan Tony hit the bar. Uh, there was a couple of there was great save from from Hugo Lloris as well, and you're right, the Kane contribution. I think he had a clearance of the line, and he had another volley that kind of went over. But that was it. I mean, other than that, um, I thought Dejan Kulovetsky as well struggle. He struggled to match the intelligent play of Brentford and the physicality of Brentford. And and the the only outlet that I could see on Spurs on that day was Ben Davis. Ben Davis was the only one that seemed to want to push forward to get a goal. But other than that, Pontus Janssen. Immense at the back. Rico Henry, if he gets a late call-up for England, I think it's deserved because he's kind of pushing that. So, Brent, I think it was a combination of both. Spurs were flat, but Brentford were really good. And they've been very good for April. Yeah, they look like they've been in the Premier League for years. Um, for, 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 first season. That was what happened with Leeds last. Let's see how Brentford do next season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. They'll get relegated. Um, no, I don't think they will. That's Fulham. That's just a done deal. Anyway, uh, Kishanen. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to talk about this because I want to go down to the bottom of the table. And things have really turned around in the last couple of weeks. Burnley have finally uh, just peeked their head out of the relegation zone and Everton have dropped down. We'll talk about their match in a moment. Burnley won Wolves nil and Burnley scored what I thought was a really well-worked goal that, that actually I've certainly seen flashes of Burnley doing this throughout the season for both your sex i just want to say what their run-in will be it's going to be watford villa spurs villa again and then newcastle i i've always kind of favored burnley a little bit um ever since that victory over everton in in midweek in midweek a few a few weeks ago and especially if you look at, at their run-in as well you look at everton the one that you just sorry you look at burnley the one that you just mentioned watford villa spurs villa again Newcastle, and you juxtapose that to Everton, that they've got Chelsea, Leicester, um, Watford, uh, Brentford, Palace, and then even Arsenal. It's 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 a slightly more difficult fixture, right? Mm. Uh, and and to be fair, Cam, um, you, I I I watched this Burnley game against Wolves, and I'm thinking to myself, I I don't really see anything different from the Sean Dyche era here. I I for one was a big fan of Sean Dyche. Um, I think with the limited resources that they had at Burnley, what he was pulling off was exceptional work. And, and, and I couldn't imagine how things would drastically change either after they sacked him. And, and until today, I still insist and I still internally feel like something else must have happened for them to pull the plug on him. Because I can't, I, I don't think they genuinely lost faith in his ability to keep them up. Because the, the performances under Sean Dyche, it's not like they were poor. They, they were still scraping out wings. They were still doing you know pretty decent on the pitch like they did against Wolves uh, over the weekend as well. To me, that was a strong dash performance, right? They only had about 32 or 33% uh, possession, but they created more chances. It was classic Sean Dyche counter-attacking at home. Um, they just set deep, absorbed pressure from Wolves, who are, by the way, not an easy team to defend against. We've, you know, we've seen how primi- uh, the, the big six teams themselves struggle against uh, Wolves this year. But the way Burnley set back, um, 
and absorbed pressure and, cre- and created more shots at the end of the day. I think it was 14 to 9 or something along those lines. It was, to me, it looked like a vintage Sean Dutch performance. So I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly seeing how different they are in terms of the approach. But with the squad that they have, with the, the volatility of the home crowd, how ferocious they can be, I, I genuinely think they have a bit of an upper hand in this relegation battle. I, you know, Sean Dyche as a manager, he must be one of those ones for players. You really get muscle memory having worked with him. Uh, you, you probably wake up screaming, you know, at some, some of the things. I'd be terrified of working for him. Hey, uh, Arvin, I want to take you across to the other important relegation match, which, we're, I mean, scoreline really a foregone conclusion, surely. Liverpool to Everton nil, but Everton now find themselves in the relegation zone. It was a pretty uh, bad-tempered match. And I was watching that, and I was thinking, well, you know, Frank Lampard, Chelsea, they've won the Champions League. Uh, he's won the Premier League. Where, where does he get any kind of memory or knowledge of how to uh, be in a situation like this? And I thought, well, Mourinho. Under Mourinho, even if they were winning everything, they still acted like they were in a relegation dogfight somehow, it, it, you know, parking the bus and just nicking a goal. That was what he was. Was he channeling Mourinho for this match? I think he was. I mean, I think the commentator summed it up perfectly with that line. That was last night was football versus anti football because there were times in that game where Everton, I, I was thinking to myself, was it actually Atletico Madrid in blue? Because <laughs> they, they went to Anfield with a game plan in mind, and their game plan was firstly to waste time with their goalkeeper as much as they could, secondly, to foul, to tackle, to disrupt, and to be negative. The only outlook that they have was Anthony Gordon, who I thought had a fantastic game. He was the only one that brought a sense of adventure or wanting to play the game in the right way. Um, but it's a result that ensures that they... Because they, they would have felt pressured from seeing what Bernie did a couple of hours ago. When Bernie got that win, Everton are back in the, are in the relegation zone. So that would have hit them quite bad. It was a better-spirited performance because I didn't think that they would hold Liverpool for as long as they did. They seemed to have better organisation at the back. But that's what you can do when you play Liverpool. You have to do that. But now when they go to the other games that they have to play, and I think those two Villa games are key because Villa, for all Steven Gerrard's early promise and that excitement, they've slowly started to get a little bit stagnated with their performances as well. I don't, I'm not saying that they'll be dragged into a, a relegation battle, but they seem to have a sense of not wanting needing to play for, for much of the season. But Everton, again, I mean, on the day itself... Um, Frank Lampard was unhappy that Anthony Gordon didn't get a penalty. And I think that was his only thing that he was kind of clutching at straws. But again, on the day itself, Liverpool had 85% of possession. It kind of says that there was only one team that was playing that game, really. Hey, Keishan, very quickly. Um, so there are two, three teams, really, in the relegations uh, dogfight at this point. I think there's well, definitely Everton and Burnley, and I think Leeds are still hovering there. Watford and Norwich, are, I mean, it's a done, I don't, 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 have we even gone beyond mathematical possibilities? Of those three, who do you think uh, who do you think is going to go down? I I, I think it's Everton. Oh. I, I have a very strong feeling that it's going to be Everton. And I'll tell you this very quickly, Cam. Um, when you're in football, when you're battling relegation, the right way to play is the way that helps you get points on board. It really doesn't matter. Uh, we we can look at Atletico Madrid's quality on the pitch and wonder why they're playing negative football. But if you're in a relegation scrap, I think playing negative football, doing whatever it takes to get points, is completely justified. And and and, and I'm looking and I'm looking at the, at the performance yesterday. Yes, I know Everton ended up losing the game, uh, but the way they frustrated Liverpool in that first half. Now 
if those performances will be were, were, were possibly replicated over 90 minutes against so many other oppositions that they faced in the last month and a half, I wonder how many more points they would have been able to accrue. Because my problem with this Frank Lampard team is that when I watched the game against Liverpool, I was asking myself, now is the time you learn that you have the ability to do this, like which is to just shut up shop, which is to just completely be conservative, limit options at the back, frustrates uh, opponents. Obviously, with Liverpool, it is a lot more difficult because they've got so much of talent and so much of depth that all they need is to just shift things around here and there and they'll be able to pick you out and just call that first goal. And once that happens, everything else unravels, right? But so many other teams that they faced in the last month and a half would have been so frustrated by this approach that they would have dropped points against Everton. And and, and it's, it's one of those things that the fact that Frank Lampard had to wait till now to employ that system, to employ that approach, I think that goes to show how inexperienced he is in managing um, um, relegation. Because if it was someone else, if it was someone else with a bit more experience in relegation battle managing this Everton team, you would have definitely seen that happening much earlier. And, and that's exactly why I think um, that, that they are quite possibly primed to go down. What, what you're describing is Sam Allardyce, isn't it? That's what they, they need to say. And it's not easy to do. Uh, Des Corkill is always attacking people who play what he calls anti-football. But, you know, there are very few managers who can pull this off and they're worth their weight in gold. Uh, Arvin, the other team that is still in potential trouble, I think anyway, is uh, your beloved Leeds United. And they will be playing Crystal Palace uh, later this week. Do, do, do you think that uh, Leeds are in trouble? They were looking a bit safe. But uh, looking at the numbers now, they're, they're not safe. Not because of Burnley's recent run of form. That's what's kind of thrown a little bit of a spanner into the mix. Um, Leeds have got a tough run of games. They've got a really tough run of games. They've got Palace at Selhurst Park, which is never easy on a late Monday night. It's never easy, which is later tonight. Then they've got Man City. They've got Chelsea. They've got Arsenal. Uh, they've got Brighton at home, which I, I believe that uh, they should be able to get something from that. But then they go away to Brentford, which a lot of Leeds fans feels that that could be a determining factor. But they're in good run of form. There's momentum behind this lead side. 10 points out of 12. Um, Liam Cooper back in the, at the heart of defence is important. And Calvin Phillips will start against Palace. So that's key. And when you would think of how well Palace have done and how poor Leeds have been, they've actually just separated by four points. That shows how close the table is right now. It's just four points between Leeds and Palace. But Palace will be out to kind of stop that run. They need, they want to get to that 40-point 40 40 point mark as well. There's a few inconsistencies lately. Uh, Vieira wouldn't want to have any of that. But Leeds have got a really tough game against Palace tonight. So they kind of need to be all up and running for them because if they don't, uh, City at home next weekend is going to be a tough one. But I wouldn't put it past Jesse March's Leeds to kind of stop City in winning their title as well. So anything can happen with Leeds, in my opinion. But that run-in that you just described it is possible that they'll get zero points it is possible but i think right now when you're at 33 i think this season if you get 36 37 you should be staying up so leeds need another win they need another win somewhere and maybe another draw and i think they'll be okay because as good as bernie's form is i don't see them winning that many. they will win a couple but to win at the rate that they've been doing it's tough and, and we know everton are in a whole hall of problems at this moment in time as well yeah well, we're going to take a break now, and then we're going to go and look at the more like the top of the league here on Off the Ball, BFM 89.9. 
goes whilst he's there. It's been very difficult for other clubs to get near them. He's that good. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back on Off the Ball with myself, Cam Raslan, Arvin Sidhu and Kishnan Sundaresan. And now, Kishnan, the uh, match, which not entirely consequential, but I, I thought it was fascinating because Chelsea won West Ham nil. West Ham have European uh, Europa Cup uh, issues, which seem to, I think, took a lot of energy out of them. They look rather tired, I think. Chelsea have been faltering a bit. I, I mean, they were just absolute shoe in for third, but there's always that possibility they might drift down from there. They they splutter in front of goal, and I was just thinking they need a striker. I bet they have they have hundreds of strikers, but they need a striker. Uh, they, they they definitely need a striker. I think they need a bunch of centre-backs too. Because Thomas Tuchel just confirmed after the game that um, Antonio Rudiger is, is set to leave the club, um, joining in the footsteps of uh, Christensen, who has apparently also agreed a, a pre-transfer move to Barcelona. So um, it's one of those things because Chelsea last year, you, you looked at them and you, and you think to yourself, oh, this squad looks like a pretty balanced squad. But this year, things are starting to unravel in terms of how they've actually got a bit of balance issues as well. Because the moment N'Golo Kante goes on a bad run of form, all of a sudden, that midfield just looks a little helpless. Um, and they have looked a little helpless for a couple of months now in, in, in a bunch of games where they've been overrun in the middle of the park, where N'Golo Kante has looked like he's, he's uh, struggling with his um, fitness, where he's struggling to cope with the pressure that's put on him. Uh, Jorginho is, is, is having a bit of a up and down season as well, and then this Kovacic, who's probably looked the most stable out of the out of the three midfielders, um, and, and and you look up front because um, last year it was all about you know Kai Harvards being the guy leading the line, um, and this year the hope was that they would get in a, a a focal point in the form of Romelu Lukaku, but obviously that hasn't worked out. Why it hasn't worked out, I really don't know because Thomas Tuchel would have sanctioned the move as well, but. Upon getting Lukaku, he's obviously not, you know, playing him in the in, in the system to get the best out of him, um, like Inter Milan did under Antonio Conte in the last couple of seasons. So it's there's a bunch of stuff happening over at Chelsea, and I don't, and I really don't blame them for for their for their, you know, um, erratic form in recent times because there's so many things happening. Even Thomas Tuchel himself is apparently going through a divorce, hmm. so it's just chaos central at Chelsea at the moment. Um, and, I, and it's it's it must be difficult, but most importantly, when you're going through a, a, a such a difficult period like you are at the moment, um, if you're able to come out of games against West Ham, you know, winning that way, I think it's it's an enormous confidence booster. Um, because they, 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 to be fair to them, they dominated the game against West Ham. But you know, you know what you get out of West Ham. They will sit deep. They would make it difficult. They would frustrate you. They will just completely, you know go crazy on you. Um, to be fair to Chelsea, they, they they got stuck in. They eventually had like 26 shots, I think, um, created a whole bunch of chances. And in the end, they, they got that pivotal goal uh, that got them all three points and will probably solidify their position as their third-place team in the Premier League. Timo Werner. Timo Werner. He reminds me of... He, he, it's like a bit of Diego Forlan, you know, unable to score goals, but it doesn't seem to bother him. He just keeps going... He, he doesn't look broken by it. He reminds me so much that. of this, this ex-Chelsea winger called Jesper Jonkier. Jesper Jonkier was exactly <laughs> like Timo Werner. So does so many great things in the ball, and then eventually, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that it just reminds me of Jesper Jonkier. I don't know. <laughs> hey, uh, Arvin, I want to I want to ask you a question, 
It's uh, it's to do with Manchester City 5, Watford 1. I'm going to ask you a question, which is, can you think of something new to say about how good Manchester City are? I mean, granted, it was against Watford, but they they come at you from everywhere. Okay. And, and, and Pep Guardiola, this is like the perfection of Pep Guardiola. Can he do it again? Would he want to do it again at Man City? Wouldn't it just be repeating, repeating, repeating? But he wants to because he's always spoken about how the Premier League is the bread and butter and he wants to leave a legacy behind. This is a club that he's been at the longest. Obviously, he's very comfortable there. He's got good support at the boardroom level as well with a couple of the ex-Barcelona directors, which I think work very closely with him as well. But you're right. I mean, it's so impressive because the array of goals that they score is from everywhere. You had one from the left flank. You had one from the right flank. You had a rocket from Rodri. Whenever Rodri scores, I think he's always thinking to himself, I just want a goal of the season contender. And that was another goal of the season contender as well. And it was a nice team goal also that they scored later on with Gabriel Jesus getting his, his fourth. So the, the thing is with them is can, they, they, they can hurt you in so many different ways. And there was this was a brilliant tune-up for their match against Real Madrid in the middle of the week because they needed to kind of get themselves running because they they don't have a break that Real Madrid have. Real Madrid didn't play on the weekend. Man City's because of the rigors of the Premier League, had to play on the weekend. But this is a brilliant tune-up for them. And with Gabriel Jesus, they've got someone who I believe is right now in the best form of his the current season right now because of where he's at. But I also think it's down to the fact that he has come out after the game and said he doesn't know whether he will stay or sign another deal with Man City because obviously there's a lot of rumours of Haaland coming and some talk that Gabriel Jesus will go over to Arsenal. But he's using this window to really impress all the potential suitors out there. So for me, they can hurt you in so many different ways. Brilliant tune-up for the Champions League semi-final. And yeah, I, I can't find something bad to say about them, to be honest. Can I just say that um, I think next season will be really, really, really interesting to see Man City. I think next season could potentially be the most interesting one. Because if Erling Haaland does come in, um, it make no mistake, he's an incredible football player, right? And he will guarantee you goals. But to fit Haaland into your system, especially the Man City system, it will require some form of tweaking from Pep Guardiola. Because over the years, from, from his time at City, um, maybe at Bayern was the last time he had a classic you know, target, target man in the form of Lewandowski. Um, but Erling Haaland coming into Man City would disrupt the, the structure that he has somewhat built. And let's, let's not forget that under Pep, there, there were periods when Aguero looked great, but there were also a lot of periods where people were wondering why Aguero wasn't playing. And part of the reason is because he wants a more fluid guy up front. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how he gets Haaland to be that person or if he even manages to get Haaland to do that person and the kind of tactical tweaks that they have to make. But more importantly, just one final thing, they will also lose Fernandinho at the end of the season. Yeah. And I think Fernandinho has been, you know, you put David Silva aside, you put Vincent Company aside. Fernandinho is in the holy trinity of the three most important players of this Pep Guardiola era at Man City. He's been absolutely phenomenal for them over the years. Um, and to be fair to him, even at this age, he's still so, so important in a lot of the games. It, you know, the way he came down and calmed things down against Atletico Madrid in the Champions League. When he leaves, Pep has been trying to replace him for a while now, but I don't think they've got that replacement yet. I don't think Rodri gives you that Fernandinho uh, qualities. So I, it, it'll be fascinating to see how they cope with these departures. Well. Yeah, so do you think then that uh, Haaland is Pep's choice? I mean, I, I can't imagine people foisting pe uh, players on 
Pep Guardiola. But you're right. I mean, it, it, he's not a natural Pep Guardiola player. Yeah, but 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 he's also a tremendous goal scorer. And at this point, I think Pep is, is acknowledging that some of the difference in some of these major games that he's playing against elite teams is just having that one exceptional uh, difference maker up front, right? Um, as opposed to relying on a host of guys in the middle of the park. Um, I, 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 I'm pretty sure Pep himself is a big admirer of Erling Haaland. Um, and, and for all you know, he probably has an idea in terms of how he's going to fit Haaland um, into the system as well and how he's going mm. to tweak it. I, for one, am just fascinated to see how those tweaks will be made. Yeah. I, I watched a documentary this morning about the, uh, the, the, the rivalry between Ferguson and Wenger. And so I was thinking about, you know, Liverpool and Man City now. And uh, <clears throat> that was more interesting back then. Flying pizzas and battles in the tunnel and Martin Keown punching a referee. But the football now is astonishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it is, yeah. Yeah. Just I mean, without, the, without the drama, that's all. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if we'll ever see anything as good as this again. But Arvin, I want to take you to a club who probably will supply us with great football in the future. And it was uh, Norwich nil. Okay, it was Norwich, but Newcastle three. Um, you know, the richest club in the world now. That we've talked about on the show how they've. Uh, Bought sensibly, but I found out something interesting. We were talking about um, Atletico Madrid. Uh, apparently, Eddie Howe, during his time off from football, he went to Atletico Madrid and watched um, training sessions there and, and really took notes. You know, from his Bournemouth days, you think that's the diametric opposite, but he clearly, you know, he wants to he wants to broaden his uh, his skill set. So. Eddie Howe, who's picked up more points than anybody else since he came in than uh, other than uh, Liverpool, he might be on to something here. Yeah, you, you just have to commend someone who's willing to expand their knowledge in a different market. There's been a lot of talk over the years that the challenge that English players, or even English coaches, is that they don't get themselves more exposed to the other continental leagues. But when you hear a story like that, there's a sense of of satisfaction of someone who's clearly taking charge of his own career. And that's that's what, what it, it boils down to at the end of the day. But it's a remarkable revival. I mean, this was a club that at one point we were on this show said that they are doomed. No matter who comes in, they're doomed. They, they, they couldn't buy a win. They were right at the bottom. But right now they're in the top 10. That, that revival in itself, Eddie Howe has to take a tremendous amount of credit for that. Yes, they got the recruitment right. Yes, there are people signing the checks, but he's making it happen on the pitch. And that's where he gets all the credit that he does. And there's a bit of Brazilian magic as well on the day. I mean, Jolinton, I thought, was, was mm. fantastic with the goals that he scored. Um, the actual Real Bruno right now in the Premier League stood up with Bruno Gomares. So his goal was, was a nice chip as well. So... So Newcastle have got a very bright future ahead of them. Uh, I am, for one, am very interested to see what they do in the summer. Uh, obviously, they've got a lot of backing, but it will take a while to attract. They, they will get an upgrade of what they have now, uh, but to, to where they want to get to be, it will be a gradual progression. You can't just go out right away. It's not fantasy manager. You just go and buy whoever you want because you've got a cheat code and you've got a lot of money. It doesn't work that way. But it will be about enticing people to what the project is about, getting them on board, and players would take notice of what Eddie Howe has done. So, so fair, fair play to him. If he had this full season with Newcastle, the way he's done it, he'd probably be up there for manager of the, the season. But he's done tremendously well since the start of the year. Somebody remind me, how, how many years did it take uh, Manchester City from uh, to go from 
when when they were bought by. I, I think at Home City you had you had the Taksin owners where they were still buying. They they had the, the the Robinos. They had a couple of high name players that they had. So they there was there was a couple of ownerships that were there. But you're looking at probably I think you should probably think about six years, five to five to seven years before you get to where you yeah. were. And, and and to be fair to them, um, Man City kind of got a bit too excited at first as well, and they made a lot of blunders with the signings. There were some ridiculous names that were brought in. I remember looking at the squad and thinking to myself, what exactly is going on here? It was a bit of a mess. Even the Robinho signing, he didn't even know that he was signing for Man United. Exactly. He thought he was signing for Man United. Because um, <laughs> all he heard was Manchester, right? Um, and, and, and to be fair, when I look at Newcastle, look, I'm not a big fan of the takeover. I'm not a big fan of the new owners. And a part of me was kind of hoping they would implode in the same way. I was kind of hoping they would make those big signings in January and bring in this flashy manager who's got absolutely no idea how to navigate through a relegation battle and having spent all this money they would still end up being relegated I was I was kind of hoping for that to happen right but to be fair to them and as much as it I hate saying this but to be fair to them they've actually done things in a very very sensible way I mean the appointment of Eddie Howe was a very sensible move um, you look at all the signings, um, even even the marquee one in the form of Bruno uh, Guimaraes, he's a marquee signing that is an extremely sensible one because Bruno Guimaraes could have could have um, walked into any big teams in, 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 in the Premier League and he'd still be at home there. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's an incredible, the, the, the way they've built and shaped the, the, the team in January has just been tremendous and they're reaping the rewards. Yeah. Riyadh on time will be celebrating. And uh, Newcastle being sensible. Wow. That hasn't happened for a while, if ever. <laughs> okay. Uh, in a moment, we're going to come back with Champions League semi final preview here on Off the Ball BFM 89.9. England's highest quality title race of all time, but coming out on top again in the Premier League, Manchester City. Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back on Off the Ball, and now it is Champions League. It's the semi-finals. We're getting closer and closer, and uh, we have the two matches coming up. We've got Manchester City versus Real Madrid, and then we'll be having a Liverpool versus Villarreal, which will be on Wednesday. Arvin, I want to ask you, Real Madrid have pretty much got La Liga sewn up, I think. Have they actually won the La Liga yet? Uh, they, just, they just need to draw or beat Espanyol on the weekend because after Barcelona losing last night, just a draw, they, they, they'll be champions and then they have potentially a guard of honour when they go to Atletico next weekend. So. Oh, and I'm sure Atletico will be so happy to do that. Of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, City have got the home advantage in the first match. I can never tell. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And Arvin, do you think that Real Madrid will be able to beat this uh, Manchester City team? I think going into this game, a lot of people feel that Man City are the favourites, at least slight favourites over Real Madrid. But you can never discount Real Madrid out of this tournament. I mean, we've seen what's happened in the previous rounds when they've gone away for the first game and then they've come back to the Bernabeu and they've, they've done what they've done on, on Magical Nights. Uh, and it, it was a reversal because in, with, with PSG, they had to come back at the Bernabeu. And when they played Chelsea, they were kind of outplayed at the start and then they came back slightly after that. But with Carlo Ancelotti, with his experience of this of this of this um, this tournament, you can never discount him out. Um, the, the challenge that Man City has is: Will Pep overthink things? Will he 
be the, the the standard pep to say this is how the best we play against Real Madrid or will he try something different which we've seen him do in semi-finals in the final against um, that he played as well against Chelsea uh, but Real Madrid have got some problems David Alaba is potentially might be missing Casimiro might be out Adam Militao comes back in uh, Man City I believe Joe Cancelo is out for them so that's that's a slight 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 big one for them but it will be tough for Madrid but don't discount them out because Real Madrid if there's anything that, that tells us this they are the, the team that when the season is coming to an end, especially in Europe, they pick up the form that's above any other team in Europe. So I, I, uh, it'll be a brave man to bet against Real Madrid for this one, in my opinion. Yeah, because Keisha, I mean, there, there are a lot of psychological issues at this point where you've got Real Madrid, absolute Champions League aristocracy, uh, won it more than anyone else. And Manchester City, on the other hand, that have just failed, quite frankly. Uh, despite all their riches. And then also there's the, the home advantage in the first match. If they fail to really do anything in this match, then they've got to go to Real Madrid. So there's kind of pressure on being at home. You know, um, you know the movie Glenn, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, um, uh-huh. where Alec Baldwin... Um, you know, he, he goes on on this incredible monologue, and he's you know he sums it up by saying, "Always be closing." And I think that line is probably hung on a portrait uh, over at, at at the Santiago Bernabeu or even the Real Madrid training ground because they are they've always been historically the greatest closers in the Champions League. They just know how to close these ties. When you get to the crunch time, when you get to the semifinals, you get to to, to the moment when it matters the most in European football, there are no better closers available to you than Real Madrid, especially with Karim Benzema there, who's such an, 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 an incredible figure. Uh, that, that midfield of Luka Modric, Tony Cruz, these are European football royalties. But it's beyond them, right? It's it's the culture of the club. It's it's that um, when, when you, you could be playing for any other team in Europe, but the moment you put on a Real Madrid jersey and, and the Champions League anthem comes on, you get an added sense of, of confidence that you're going to be able to get it across the line. And we, we've seen them do it multiple times, right? Even all the titles they won at the Zidane, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that they were genuinely the best team in Europe those years, uh, in all those years. But they, they, they ended up winning the European Championship. They ended up winning the Champions League. That's just how good they are when it comes to these stages. And, and, and that is why that, I, I would I would still place them as favourites above City. I know City have the better squad. I know City play the better football. They've got more quality. But I'd place Real Madrid as favourites, number one, because they are the best closers in the Champions League. But number two, also because of what Arvin said, that overthinking uh, bit, right? Um, obviously, we've seen bits and pieces of improvement from Pep. I think he's desperate to win the Champions League. And that desperation was visible in the way that they completely resorted to things that they don't usually do against Atletico Madrid in the last yep. five to ten minutes of the game. I think that was a clear indication of how desperate he was because Pep is a guy who doesn't move, doesn't sway from his principles, even in the strongest of tests. But he did it against Atletico in the last ten minutes when they needed to, to, to just get it across the line. So, there have been improvement. There's a lot of optimism that Man City and Pep can finally get it done this year, but I still plays Real Madrid over them as favourites. I would. I wish I could watch this match uh, with a picture-in-picture with Gareth Bale in the corner playing a round of golf at the same time that uh, Real Madrid are playing in the Champions League semi-final. Um, hey, uh, Arvin, let's go to the other semi-final. 
another Champions League or European Cup aristocracy, Liverpool, who are famous for their European nights. And I think that this will be uh, yet another against Villarreal, a team that Kishnan was telling us about right from the beginning that we should never discount. How, how, how do you, I mean, I, I, it, it seems to be hard to go bet against Liverpool, though. It's, it's, it's tough to go against Liverpool, but this Villarreal's team under Unai Emery, they will not fold. They, 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 there's obviously a, a distinct uh, difference of quality of talent and players on form right now at this at this moment in time in their careers, but they will not fold. They will not. It will not be a whitewash where Liverpool will just think that they're going to go there and 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 and, and kind of take it to Atletico and kind of Villarreal and kind of overcome the, the two legs because it's not going. It's not going to happen like that. The midfield trio that Villarreal have had this season, when you look at Etienne Kapoor. Uh, previously um, at, at Spurs and even I think for a little while at, at Watford, Danny Parejo in the middle as well, and Manu Trigueros, those are players who have been absolutely fantastic this season, and especially in Europe. They don't always break the most convincing results, but they get the job done. They, they, they just somehow they get the job done. And when you look at a Liverpool backline where I think in Europe, Trent Alexander-Arnold can be found out slightly in the Premier League, he, it, he, I think he gets a little bit. He gets a little bit away with it. But when he goes, when he goes up against in Europe, when you've got someone like Arnat Jauma running against him, um, that could that could be a challenge as well. So for me, Liverpool start as favourites. Uh, I know a lot of Liverpool fans that were were celebrating when Villarreal beat uh, Bayern Munich. But let's be very very wary about this. If there's anyone who's a smooth operator that knows how to get things done, it, it's Unai Emery. And for all his his Europa League wins, it would be, it would be his crowning achievement to take a team to the Champions League final. Oh, I mean, yeah, but come on, Kish. I mean, they're seventh in the in the yeah. Spanish league. No, but I, the, I, I've, I've been they're a, the Everton. Oh, Kish called that they would beat Bayern, and they did. So no, no, no. But but look, I, I've been a big fan of Villarreal, but this is where I think their journey ends because. The last two games against Juventus and Bayern Munich, there were no real surprises. Um, the, the, the world was surprised, but it wasn't actually something to be surprised with. Because um, Villarreal, let's set aside the fact that Villarreal have obvious quality in the team, right? You, you, you look at Juventus, they had a really rough season. Um, it's a disjointed football club at the moment. Um, yes, they brought in Vlahovic. Yes, they brought in Denis Zakaria. But I don't think um, Allegri has got the right identity over at Juventus yet. You still don't know the brand of football that they are sticking in. You know, it varies from game to game. Um, they, they're struggling to, to large extents in this area. And, and, and at a stage where they face uh, Villarreal, it wasn't difficult to see how Villarreal could possibly beat them. And they did it very convincingly as well. And then came Bayern Munich, probably the more difficult out of the, 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 the more difficult than the one that they faced prior to that, which is Juventus. But even Bayern Munich, who have got a, a historical reputation in Europe and they've completely dominated the Bundesliga. In fact, over the weekend, they, they, they wrapped up their 10th Bundesliga title in a row. But anyone who's, watched, anyone who's watched the Bundesliga this year will tell you that this year, more than ever, it is a chaotic Bayern Munich side uh, that, that is so open at the back that can be found out, like so many teams in the Bundesliga have. Um, whether or not they win the games, they will definitely concede goals. And that's all Villarreal had to do, really, um, which is keep it tight at the back. But whenever you get the opportunity to hit Bayern Munich on the counter, 
take full advantage of that and you will get the goals because they're very shaky at the back this season. They've got you know, a, a, an entire uh, a back four that is very new. Alfonso Davis has been out injured, uh, sorry, out with a heart condition uh, for, for like a couple of months. Opamecano has not looked great after coming in. Nicholas Sule is leaving to Dortmund in the summer, so I don't think his head has been fully in as well for Bayern Munich. And then on the right side, uh, on the right side of defense, it's been there. You know, it's been a problem all season long. So you could see that happening, and it's not not a surprise that Villarreal won. But come on, this is a whole different ball game. This is a Liverpool side that is, to me, much better than the one that won the Champions League, much better than the one that won the Premier League a couple of years ago. This is peak Jurgen Klopp. If if it, you you look at the squad depth, it's it's insane, and you look at the kind of goals that they're scoring, the movements, the way they are opening up teams, um, just the positive vibes. Um, that, that's happening at the stadium at the moment. Uh, one of the more impressive things about of, about the Merseyside derby was how Jurgen Klopp activated the crowd. And it's something that he will do again in the Champions, Champions League semi-finals as well. So, as big of a fan as I've been of Villarreal's run in the Champions League, um, I think this is where it ends against Liverpool. Okay, guys, guys give, me, uh, give me predictions. For this leg, I think it'll be a draw. Uh, but I believe, as hard as it is for me to say, I just somehow feel Man City will go through to the final. And with Liverpool and Villarreal? Uh, Liverpool. Oh, you were talking, you were talking Villarreal. No, I just, just said now. they wouldn't fall. They wouldn't fall so badly, but I said, give them a chance. Give them a chance. Okay. And Kishnan, finally you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going for a Man City Liverpool final score. Uh, do we do we like uh, finals where both teams no. are from the same country? No, they're Dallas. Usually fans. we don't. Usually we don't. But Man City and Liverpool have just given yeah. us, oh my God, like the two most incredible games of football this year have come from both this opposition. Um, and if they continue to play the same way in the final and not, you know, start to be cagey and pragmatic, and then I'm up for it. Um, I, I think it'll be incredible. Yeah. Okay. Well, if that is the final, I just wish one of the players would throw some pizza uh, yeah. in, in a corridor and it would land on Jurgen Klopp's face or something, you know? Okay, well, that brings us to the end of this week's show. And uh, so thank you to Arvin Sidhu. Thank you, everyone. Enjoy the midweek football. And thank you to Kishnan Sundaresan. Cheers, guys. Enjoy the week. And from myself, Cam Ruslan, it's goodbye. And please join us for the Friday show. Uh, but for now, it's Off the Ball, BFM 89.9. Where's the try? <laughs> and he's always prepared to give it a go. Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.